Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, Judges chapters 16, 17, and 18. We're going to finish up with Samson today and also begin to deal with the concluding section of the book of Judges that's wholly different in character than the first 16 chapters that we've been in. In fact, Samson in chapter 16 ends the discussion of the Shoftim, the, the judges of Israel, at least within the book of Judges itself. Now, the conclusion of the era of the judges is therefore not even discussed within the book of, the judge, within the book of Judges but is actually addressed within the books of Ruth and Samuel. And by the way, we're going to move on directly into Ruth and then to Samuel upon ending our study of the book of Judges. Now our last lesson revolved around the subject of faith versus faithfulness. And of the betrayal of Samson by his Philistine girlfriend Delilah. And as a brief review, I'd like you to recall that it can catch people by surprise to hear that faith is quite different than faithfulness. And the difference is basically that faith is a state or condition of mind and spirit while faithfulness is our acting upon that state. Faith of itself is passive. Faithfulness is active. Faithfulness is a physical act out uh, or, or acting out or expression of our faith. A life that bears little or no signs of faithfulness doesn't necessarily mean that that person doesn't have faith, but it does mean that they are being disobedient and that they are spiritually going in reverse, or maybe even have reached a state of dormancy. It's a dangerous, even fatal position for a believer. But due to the very nature of faithfulness, such a person usually doesn't even recognize their precarious situation, and very often when confronted with it, denies it by stating their continuing faith in the God of Israel, and in the case of a modern believer, faith in Messiah. We saw that same principle playing out in the life of Samson. Samson maintained his faith in the God of Israel, so far as we know, throughout his life. However, his faithfulness to his God ebbed and flowed. And what we read about in the book of Judges usually centers on his low points. His lack of faithfulness, Samson's lack of faithfulness, led finally to the sad and utterly terrifying quote of chapter 16, verse 20. When after his hair was cut off, the scripture says, but he, Samson, didn't know that Adonai had left him. That's terrifying. Let's reread a short section of uh, chapter 16 to get our bearings for today's lesson. 
Turn to page uh, 290 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 19. Uh, yeah, verse 19. She, meaning Delilah, had him go to sleep in her lap and called for a man to shave off his seven locks of hair. Then she began tormenting him, but his strength had gone away, and she said, Shimshon, Samson, the Plishtim, the Philistines have come for you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll get out this time, just as I shook myself loose before. But he didn't know that Adonai had left him. So the Pilishtim seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. Yes, that same Gaza. And there they bound him with two bronze chains and put him to work grinding grain at the mill in the prison. However, after the hair on his head had been cut off, it began growing back again. The chiefs of the Pilishtim assembled to offer a great sacrifice to their god Dagon. And as they celebrated, they sang, Our God has handed over to us our enemy Samson. And upon seeing him, the people praised their God. Our God has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and killed so many of us. And when they were in high spirits, they said, Summon Samson to amuse us. So they called Shimshon out of prison and he amused them. And when they put him between the columns, Shimshon said to the boy holding him by the hand, Let me feel the columns supporting the building so I can lean on them. The building was full of men and women. All the chiefs of the Pilishtim were there. In addition to them, there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof, watching as Samson performed. And Shimshon said to Adonai, Adonai Elohim, just this once, please think of me and please give me strength so that I can take revenge on the Philistines for at least one of my two eyes. Samson got a good hold on the two middle columns supporting the building and he leaned on them, one with his right hand, the other with his left. And then crying, let me die with the Philistines, he pushed with all of his might. The building collapsed on the chiefs and on the people inside, so he killed more at his death than he killed during his life. His brothers and all his father's family came down, took him, brought him up and buried him between Sorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel for 20 years. When Samson's insatiable lust for sex and beautiful pagan women finally overwhelmed him in the person of Delilah, he had reached the point of no return. It, was, it would just be a matter of time before he was willing to make the all-important symbol of his special and holy Nazarite status before the Lord, his long and uncut hair, something he was willing to risk losing. If it meant he could continue his fleshly pleasures. I have no doubt that consciously he never thought that losing that symbol and with it his set-apart relationship with Yehovah would actually happen. But neither did he any longer value it so much that he would protect it at any cost, beginning with altering his behavior. Samson was born for the purpose of bedeviling the Philistines. That meant he would have constant contact with them. 
But it did not mean he was to become as them. The Philistines were to be his project and his enemy, not his closest friends, even if a cordial acquaintance with him at some level was was inevitable. Now I point this out because it is common within Christianity for believers with good intent to involve themselves in the lives of criminals, prostitutes, druggies, or the greedy or powerful, and then when questioned about it, claim that it is their calling, which indeed it may be. However, it is also rather common to see that such a believer begins to look more and more like those who he came to rescue rather than like the Savior who sent him. It happens that this believer starts to take on the characteristics of the unsaved, but says, it's so he can save them. The thing is, that all too often this notion that we're rubbing elbows primarily with non-believers as a means of doing something for God, is that in fact we're doing it for ourselves. Sometimes it's just camouflage to hide our inner desires, and other times it's a means to just appear especially pious. Samson grew to feel more and more comfortable with the pagan Philistines than he did among his own people. Such a comfort level is quite dangerous and it can lead to a serious downfall unless one increases his nearness to God, not decreases it or compromises it supposedly for the sake of fitting in with the group to which he or her is ministering. Samson was captured. He was put into metal shackles. The Philistines had a lot of experience with the inadequacy of ropes as a binding mechanism for him, and they weren't taking any chances. But they also permanently blinded him, both as a humiliation and as a means of making him more docile. And as a further humiliation, verse 21 explains that they put him to work grinding grain. Now, this humiliation is usually pictured with Samson handcuffed to a huge industrial grain grinder that was normally powered by an ox or a donkey. However, no such thing is implied. And all current archaeological evidence is that the type of grain mill similar to what you see here wasn't even invented until at least 700 years after his death. Samson merely sat at a standard stone grain mill and ground grain a few handfuls at a time, from dawn to dusk. Grinding grain was considered woman's work. And for such a manly man as Samson to be reduced to doing such a thing, after all of his notorious exploits, it made him utterly impotent and laughable to his enemies whom he had harmed so much in his heyday. But while he was languishing away in prison, Something else was happening. His hair began to grow back. 
If one gives it a little thought, a good question would be, why would the writer of Judges record such an obvious and trivial thing as the very natural action of Samson's hair growing back after it had been cut? I mean, after all, this would happen to anybody under almost any circumstance. Of course the answer is that the inspired writer has something more in mind here. And it implies a re-examination by Samson of his relationship with God and also a recognition of his personal failings. Samson was ready to acknowledge his sin and was going through this terribly painful process of real repentance. And repentance would lead to some degree of spiritual strengthening, some amount of restoration of his Nazarite status. Now, this is a pattern for us to be acutely aware. First, if we are unfaithful, our spiritual strength will deteriorate. Second, our spiritual strength, as it deteriorates, makes our usefulness to the kingdom and God's purposes for us begin to evaporate. Third, when we have become so unfaithful, we cross a line that's really only known to God. And it causes God to react. God can choose to depart from us. At least in the sense of being an active protector and influence in our lives. That at the very least. And fourth, when that happens, our fall or destruction is sealed. The good news is that even when we have finally come to destruction, if we will recognize our sin, sincerely repent and confess it, the Lord will return to us. However, that return may not be immediate. It may not be how or to the same degree or even for the same purpose that it once was before our fall. Samson was in a glorious position for a long time. He was one of but a handful of God-authorized judges over Israel. Samson was feared and revered by friend and foe. The earth trembled whenever he walked, and he was absolutely invincible. But as we're going to soon see, even though he returned to God, and God returned to him there in prison, his new, much deteriorated condition bore little resemblance to his past glory. Sin has consequences. Lasting consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean that those consequences will be totally averted here on earth. It merely means that the Lord will not count that sin against us and thus cut us off from Him in eternity. As happened on regular occasions, the elite of the Philistines gathered at their temple to offer a sacrifice. The chief Philistine god was Dagan or Dagon. And while it was not for the express purpose of mocking Samson that they assembled that day, they did offer up thanks to Dagon for handing Samson over to them. And Dagon is usually depicted in the form of a half-man, half-fish, 
After all, the Philistines were called the Sea Peoples. And their territories crawled along the Mediterranean Sea. But Dagon's function was as the god of grain and harvest. So fertility also played a role in Dagon's sphere of influence. No doubt it was an agricultural festival of some sort that was underway in Philistia. What is even sadder than Samson's pitiful condition is that the God of Israel was now seen by the enemies of Israel as defeated by Dagon, the God of the Philistines. And the Lord is always concerned that the actions of his set-apart people not reflect badly on him or give his enemies false cause for celebration. Don't think any of that's changed. Notice today that whenever any of the Arab nations make gains against Israel, or Israel moves forward thinking that their own strategies and military might are the path to victory, that Allah gets the credit. And by definition, that makes Jehovah seem weak and impotent to the unbelieving Muslims, thus distorting God's true nature. You know, all evidence is that Islam is growing at a much faster rate today than Christianity. And that's not because of God. It's because of the unfaithfulness of his followers that make us seem weak and God's enemies strong. Everybody wants to hitch their wagon to a winner. Once the revelries of the Philistine festival were in full swing and people were drunk and feeling full of themselves, they decided it might be fun to bring out Samson so they could deride him and mock him a little bit more. But in prison, in that most unimaginable horror that were the prisons of old. Samson had changed, but not entirely. He apparently had come to terms with God, such that God saw it as repentance, and thus returned some measure of strength and divine purpose to Samson. So when Samson was chained to the two primary supporting columns of the temple to Dagon, he was able to push on them, causing the roof to cave in. Now in those days, it was typical that the supporting pillars weren't one large carved piece, but rather were small cylindrical sections stacked up upon each other, kind of form a pillar. So Samson was able to push one of those sections on each pillar far enough askew that the column's stones no longer lined up and so they fell over and the roof crumbled. Now many examples of that era of ancient temples in the Middle East have been found and cataloged and it was common for them to be very large. It was also common that the roof was used for the regular folks to gather kind of like an overhang over a porch. And watch these ceremonies Below was conducted by priests and attended by dignitaries. In this case, we're told in verse 23 that the chiefs of the Philistines were there, meaning, at the least, that the kings of the five major Philistine cities, the same ones 
who had hired Delilah to deceive Samson were there. The ground floor of the temple under the roof was full and the roof itself, it says, was crowded. Undoubtedly, the crowded condition of the roof made its collapse easier so that when Samson made the pillars that held it up unstable, the weight of 3,000 people on it, that roof contributed to its buckling. We're told that in his death he killed more of God's Philistine enemy than he had in the many run-ins he'd had with him during his life. And that's what I was getting at a few minutes ago. The Lord determined that the last act of Samson, a redemptive act of sorts, after Samson had repented sufficiently that the Lord decided to return to him in some measure, was also going to mean the end of his life. Unlike the earlier part of his life, during a more faithful time, when the adoring women and children that followed Samson around and praised him after the many times he had bruised the Philistines, this time, the only songs that would be written and sung for him would be as a memorial. The only honor he would have was to get his crushed body removed and then entombed along with his father's. It didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. But Samson couldn't see that before the Lord had departed from him and then his eyes gouged out. This is why pastors and rabbis and simple teachers such as myself beg you and exhort you to be faithful and not merely have faith. Samson died in a state of grace, but as a broken and shamed man. Samson could have been honored today as King David is honored. But instead, Samson chose the way of flesh. He preferred fellowship with God's enemies to fellowship with God's people. Samson had so ruined the unique gift that the Lord had given to him, that all that was left for him was to lose his life in one final act of personal revenge. An act that at least served a purpose in God's kingdom. Yes, just as in the past, it was always Samson's passions and lusts that led to the conflicts he caused, and then avenging and revenging that cycled back and forth between he and the Philistines, and even at his death, it wasn't God's instruction for him to kill all those Philistines. It was a personal act of anger and payback for their treatment of him. Verse 31 explains that Samson's family came to the demolished temple to fetch his body and bring it home for proper burial. All known cultures of that era were greatly concerned with the corpse. And thus it was the norm for relatives of a fallen enemy to be given free passage to retrieve the body of a loved one. According to the Bible and all known records, Samson was an only child. The brothers spoken of here, those who came to claim his body, are meant in a general sense, not in the sibling sense. These were members of Samson's clan doing their duty 
as next of kin. Samson's judgeship ended after a 20-year run. Let's move on now to the final section of the book of Judges. We're going to do a bunch of reading here. So, get your Bibles out to page 291 if you have the complete Jewish Bible, chapter Judges chapter 17. We're going to read that and 18 all together. Would you um, adjust the temperature down just a little bit, please? There was a man from the hills of Ephraim named Michiahu. And he said to his mother, You know the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you? You pronounced a curse about it and you told me about it? Well, the money's with me. I took it. And his mother said, May Adonai bless my son as he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And then his mother said, I solemnly dedicate this money of mine to Adonai in order for my son to make a carved image overlaid with silver. So now I'm giving it back to you. But he returned the money to his mother, and she took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the metal worker who made a carved image overlaid with silver which was put in Mikiahu's house. This man, Micha, owned a house of God. So he made a ritual vest and a household uh, and household gods and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. And at that time there was no king in Israel. A man simply did whatever he thought was right. There was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, from the family of Judah, who was a levy. He'd been staying in Bethlehem, and, and, but he left there to find another place to live and came to the hills of Ephraim, where eventually he made his way to the house of Micha. And Micha asked him, Where are you coming from? And he answered, I'm a levy from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to live. And Micha replied, Well, stay with me, and be a father and a priest for me. I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year in addition to your clothing and food. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. And after Micha consecrated the Levite, the young man became his priest and stayed there in Micha's house. And Micha said, Now I know that Adonai will treat me well because I have a Levite for a priest. Chapter 18. At that time there was no king in Israel. And it was also at that time that the tribe of Dan was looking for a place to claim ownership of and settle in since they had not yet been given any land of their own among the tribes of Israel. The people of Dan sent five men five leading men from Sorah and Eshtaol representing their whole tribe to spy out and explore the land. And they instructed them, Go, explore the land. And they came to the hills of Ephraim to the house of Micah, and they stayed there. While they were there at Micah's house, they recognized the accent of the young man, the Levite. So they approached him and said, Who, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What, what is there for you here? And he answered, well, here's the arrangement Micha has made with me. He pays me a wage, and I serve as his priest. And they said to him, Well, then please ask God whether our journey will be successful. And the priest replied, Don't worry. Adonai is with you on this journey. Well, the five men left and came to Laish, and saw the people there living securely according to the customs of the Sidonim, the Sidonians, quietly and securely, and since no one in the land was exercising authority that might shame them in any respect, moreover, they were far away from the Sidonim and had no dealings with other peoples, 
So when they returned to their kinsmen at Zorah and Eshtol, they asked them what they had to report. And they said, let's get up and go attack them. We've seen the land. It's excellent. Don't delay. Let's start moving. Go in and take the land. When you go, you're going to come to a people who feel safe. There's plenty of land. The place lacks nothing. It has everything there is on earth and God has given it to you. So from the tribe of Dan, 600 men equipped for war set out from there, from Zorah and Eshtaol, and they went up and camped at Kiryat Yarim in Judah, which is why that place is called Manachat Dan, the camp of Dan to this day. Actually, it's behind Kiryat Yarim. And from there they passed on into the hills of Ephraim and came to Micha's house. And the men who had gone to spy out the land of Laish then said to their kinsmen, Are you aware that in these buildings... There's a ritual vest, household gods, and a carved image overlaid with silver. Decide what you ought to do. Well, they turned off the road and went to the house of the young Levite, that is to say, Micah's house, and asked how he was doing. And the 600 soldiers from Dan stayed at the gate, while the five who had spied out the land went in and took the idol overlaid with silver, the vest, and the household gods. And the priest had stayed with the 600 soldiers by the gate. But when they went into Micah's house and took the silver-covered image, the vest, and the household gods, the priest asked them, What are you doing? And they replied, Be quiet, keep your mouth shut, and come with us. Why don't you be a father and a priest for us? Which is better, to be a priest in the house of one man, or to be a priest to a whole tribe and family in Israel? This made the Kohen feel pretty good. So he took the ritual vest, the household gods, and the image and went off with the people. So they turned and left with their children, cattle and belongings going ahead of them. Well, when they were a good distance from Micah's house, the men who lived in the houses near his got together and overtook the people from Dan and began shouting at them. And the people from Dan turned around and said to Micah, What's wrong with you that you've gathered such a crowd? And he answered, You've taken away my God which I made, and and you've gone off with the priest. What more have I got? How, How can you ask me what's wrong with you? And the men from Dan replied, You'd best say no more to us, because some of us just might get angry and attack you. You could lose your life. So might the others in your household. Then the people of Dan... And the people from Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were just too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So they took what Micah had made and his priest. Well, then they came to Laish, to a quiet and trusting people. They attacked. They killed them. They burned down the city. No one came to rescue them because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with other peoples. This was in the valley near Beit Rehov. Then the people of Dan rebuilt the city and they settled there. They named the city Dan after Dan their ancestor who was born to Israel. Although the city had previously been called Laish. The people of Dan set up the image for themselves. Yohanan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests for the tribe of the people of Dan until the day of the exile from the land. Thus they erected for themselves Micah's idol which he had made, and it remained there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, I read those two chapters together 
and without stopping so we could get a better sense of what was going on here and how it was connected. But before we start dissecting these paragraphs, let me point out a couple of important features. First of all, Judges chapters 17 through 21, which is the end of the book, are usually called appendices by biblical scholars, and there's a good reason for this. Because these chapters don't even deal with any judges at all. Rather, there is apparently some general information here that's meant to add to our overall understanding of the era of the judges. Second, as often happens in the Bible, these final chapters are not in chronological order. So even though Samson was the next to the last judge, Samuel being the final one, although he was really more of a kind of a transitory figure ushering Israel from the era of the judges into the era of the kings, what we just read, what I just read to you, did not come after Samson. In fact, because of the chapter's main subject material, focusing on the tribe of Dan, this probably occurred at least 200 years before Samson. Generally speaking, most Jewish scholars, ancient and current, and a fairly broad majority of Christian scholars, put these events that we just read during the time of the first judge of Israel, Otniel. Now, as an aside, concerning why the Bible is often not in chronological order, it's because the Hebrews who wrote it were much less concerned with time and more concerned with the subject matter. In other words, while modern writers and teachers generally have a greater concern to present a story based on the order that things happened, the ancient Hebrews held a greater concern to present a story based on connecting all the major elements of the story, even if they took place in different eras. Thus, since Samson was from the tribe of Dan, these so-called appendices deal with the tribe of Dan. And the history of the tribe of Dan, especially in how they had managed to fall so far away from the Lord, and what happened when they abandoned their territorial allotment to move north for easier pickings. Third, These chapters affirm something that I taught you in our very first lesson a few months back. The introduction to the book of Judges. And it is that the entire purpose and tone of the period of the Judges and the biblical record of that period is to demonstrate that Israel in particular and mankind in general need a king. That precept generally flies in the face of most mainstream Christian commentators who say the opposite. That the book of Judges demonstrates that God didn't want Israel to have a king. The idea being that God wanted to be their king and so to have an earthly king was an inherently sinful desire. Yet the very words of this book, the pattern God lays down from Genesis to Revelation, shows that mankind, and perhaps all beings, physical or spiritual, must have a king to guide them. And that then the fact that throughout the New Testament, 
We have Yeshua is called a king and a king forever, which is the fulfillment of Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy, says that it cannot possibly be that God doesn't want man to have a king. The issue is which king, not whether there should be one or not. Now we're going to find several places in these appendices quote the words, at that time there was no king in Israel. And usually, it's further amended with the words, Thus, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, one caused the other. The lack of a king led to each man choosing his own way. Israel's refusal to have a king caused a kind of spiritual anarchy to develop within the tribes. What we must see is that since chronologically speaking these final chapters should from a modern perspective our modern perspective actually be placed at the beginning of the book of Judges as a preface to the book of Judges rather than an appendix at the end the entire premise for what goes on in Judges and the deteriorating condition of the tribes of Israel that we observe as we read the book can be summed up in those words. At that time, there was no king in Israel and thus every man did what was right in his own eyes. Israel needed a king. And Israel is going to have a king, as will all mankind in the form of Jesus the Messiah for all eternity. And although Yeshua is God, he also bore the form of a human and will apparently bear whatever new form humans will have beginning in the thousand year reign and then beyond. Well, with that as a background, let's take a look at the story of Micah, or the way it's usually pronounced in English, Micah. And verse, we're not going to get too far into this, by the way. Verse 1 of Judges 17 begins with placing a man named Mikayahu in the area of the hills of Ephraim. We're not going to get any better details of his exact location than this. Apparently this man's given name at birth was Mikayahu, which means, who is like God. This is of course a very honorable name imbued with hope of a great destiny for him. Interestingly, however, we're going to see that the name Mikiahu is shortened in the following verses to Micah, Micah. Micah is not short for Mikiahu, nor is it a nickname, because it merely means who is like. All reference to God is dropped. The story begins with a startling admission from Micah. He has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother and now wants to give it back. Why this sudden bout of conscience? Because he overheard his mother pronouncing a curse on the thief. The rabbis say it was no accident that Micah's mother spoke this curse within his hearing because she knew full well that her own son was the thief. And this overheard curse, she hoped, 
would provide the needed incentive for him to come forward and return the stolen funds. Now immediately when the son confesses and offers to give back the silver, the mother blesses him. You see, the deal is that in the biblical days, curses were taken very seriously. We can call them superstitious if we like, but to the people of that day, it was understood that being the subject of a properly worded curse from anybody put you under the darkest of dark clouds. The scholar and author J.A. Motier put it this way, In the ancient world, a curse was not a mere sound on the lips, but it was like an agent sent forth, an active agent for hurt. People went to great lengths to appease the issuer of a curse if they were fortunate enough to learn that such a curse had even befallen on them. Further, the curse of a parent was considered the most potent kind second only to a curse issued by God himself. So, by the mother making sure her son overheard her curse, rather than just doing it privately as was more usual, it offered the son the possibility of a way out. Something I think most mothers in here could easily understand. Thus the son admits his crime to her, returns the ill-gotten gain, and his mother responds by neutralizing her curse upon him with a blessing. All parties are relieved. But Mika's questionable character is now revealed to us, and thus the honorable name of Mikayahu is removed from him, and he becomes merely Mika from here forward. And in this, we also see that Mikah came by his less than stellar character honestly. His mother says in verse 3 that as a result of her son being forthright and admitting his wrongdoing, she's going to dedicate those 1,100 pieces of silver he has returned to her to Adonai. What it says in the original Hebrew is to Yehovah. Thus there's no doubt that what was about to occur is strictly in reference to the God of Israel. But then she turns around in the next verse and gives less than 20% of that dedicated money to a silversmith in order for him to make a God image for the household. It is presumed that she kept the other 900 pieces of silver for herself. See, the thing is this. We are witness to what sort of perverted thing must have been repeated a thousand times over within the tribes of Israel during the time not long after Joshua and his divinely led leadership ended with his death. The mother dedicates the money to Jehovah and then turns around and keeps the vast bulk of it for herself. The money she gives is used to make a Torah-forbidden image of Jehovah. And even that selfish because she's going to use it only in her own household. Privately. It's about to get worse though. It seems that Mika owned something called a house of God. Or in the original Hebrew, a Beit Elohim. In other words, Mika's family had set apart either an area of their house or perhaps built a small sanctuary where they performed their own rituals and observances. 
The molten image of silver was going to be the centerpiece of that sanctuary as uh, at the Beit Elohim, and it was going to be in honor of Yehovah, the God of Israel. Even more, Micah had a priestly ephod manufactured to be used in the services and consecrated one of his own sons to be, to, to be a priest who would officiate over the services. I mean, wow, where do I start with this? I'm sure most of you are just shaking your heads at such a rebellious perversion of the Torah commands by the Lord's own people. And this, but no more than a few decades, if that, after Joshua's death. Does anyone think that Micah and his mother and household were doing this for the purpose of intentionally committing an evil? Did they do this Endeavor thinking, you know what, let's go against God. Were they bound and determined to be wicked? Of course not. They thought they were doing something good. They thought they were being righteous. Their intention was to be seen by God and man as especially pious people. They certainly had a knowledge of the law of Moses. Because they created an ephod mandated in the book of Leviticus to be worn by an officiating priest, usually the high priest, and they dedicated all to Jehovah by name. But what they did is what it seems that God's people eventually tend to do. We take the parts of the word we like and do them and ignore all the rest. Folks, Christianity is as guilty of this as were Micah and his mother. Judaism has fallen into the same abyss. I could go on and on with examples, but the one that perhaps has had more negative effect on the course of Christianity over the centuries than any other is the false doctrine that the Torah is dead and gone. Nailed to the cross. Because as I've demonstrated to you scores and scores of times, Yeshua himself foreknew men would try to do this. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he stated as clearly as could be imagined to an enormous crowd, don't think I have come to abolish the Torah. Or the prophets, I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that till heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And how could something so clear right from the mouth of our Savior be ignored because we prefer to do things our way? Orthodox Judaism has established the principle that rabbis are now the ultimate religious authority for them and in fact, rabbis have every right to change, add, or subtract from the law as they see fit. In fact, the Talmud says 
that even God cannot interpret scripture for this authority is given only to the rabbis. This, in my opinion, was the fork in the road that has led Judaism back into the wilderness. Because it says in Deuteronomy 4, Now Israel, listen to the laws and rulings I am teaching you in order that you follow them, so that you will live. Then you will go in and take possession of the land that Adonai, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In order to obey the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai, your God, which I am giving you, do not add to what I am saying. Do not subtract from it. Do not add and do not subtract from the commandments of God. But it has been done regularly over the centuries with disastrous results. We're going to continue the story of Micah next time.